0: Hello, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Aliza Arıcan. Today, I'm joined by Lucas Ley, head of research group at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle. We'll be talking about his book, Building on Borrowed Time, Rising Seas and Failing Infrastructure in Samarang, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Lucas, for joining us today.
1: Hi, Alize. Great to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wonderful. So, at the New Books Network, we often like to start our episodes by getting to know our authors a little better. So, can you tell us about your background as an anthropologist and how did this background lead you into this wonderful book?
1: Oh, um, yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> currently, I'm in. Environmental anthropologist, as he said at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle, and I started in January at the MPI, and I'm working on, you know, broadly speaking, on sociological change in coastal cities. And I did research in Jakarta during my master's, um, and returned to Indonesia to, you know, do a PhD. Um, research project on flooding in Samarang, which is also a coastal city on Java. Um, Yeah, I got my PhD from University of Toronto, um, where I joined a team of graduate students, which was already working with um, Tanya Lee and Joshua Barker, who were sort of trying to create this hub for critical Indonesia indonesian research at the university of toronto at this uh, department of anthropology there and yeah it was extreme privilege to work um with uh with my colleagues there and i pitched you know after after doing a master's or writing a master's thesis on illegal settlements or in informalized settlements in jakarta i pitched to tanya to to work on climate change, um, you know, which was quite vague, but <laughs> work on climate change in Indonesia. <laughs> and Joshua Barker was also supportive of it. Of it. And so, yeah, I um, I embarked on this, on this PhD research um, and returned to Indonesia. Yeah.
0: Well, we're very glad that <laughs> this pitch led us into this wonderful book. Uh, and, you know, I'm very curious about... Um, your book's titular concept. So you developed this concept of building on borrowed time, and I think it really just beautifully illustrates how people relate to flooding and infrastructure through multiple iterations of the future. So I want to hear more from you on this term, and what is at stake in thinking about infrastructure through borrowed time?
1: Yeah, um, thank you, so this term, was I mean it's always fun to come up with titles, right? And I had to I had to convince the press of keeping that title, which was also the title of the PhD thesis, which I then revised into this book, um, uh, which took a couple of years. Um and so this this term I have to give credit to Tanya Lee <laughs> uh to some extent because it came up in these uh supervisory conversations that you have. Um you know, at best, they're regular and and they were. I mean, it was really great to exchange with uh, her and Joshua and my committee at the time and my, my colleagues. And so, you know, coming back from Samadheim where this research was conducted, um, I had this, I tried to articulate this impression um, of, of, you know, of how people lived with tidal flooding um, which was this regular occurrence in the former wetlands of this port city. Um, and which forced these residents to constantly sort of reestablish the foundations of their, of their life on, on these, you know, amongst crumbling infrastructures and at the edge of, 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 of the sea, Um, even though they knew that this tidal flooding would always return you know so that that this is where i well, this is where i started thinking about what it means to live on borrowed time because there's this horizon of the encroaching sea and yet these the settlements the coastal settlements of Samarang, have you know endured in this in this you know insecure uh, situation and and geography for a very long time so and and let's let me return to Tanya um, <laughs> because when I when I said you know people are living a borrowed time you know as a as a um, as someone who didn't grow up um, speaking English um, I guess I didn't know that this this phrase was kind of too common, <laughs> like, I don't know, it, it, at the same time, it, it, it also conjured like a lot of different meanings that I wasn't aware of at the time. So we discussed it. And, and so we came up with this idea of building on borrowed time because, you know, to, to, to respond to tidal flooding, in Indonesia means to repair your house, um, build new roads, um, maintain the canals and the gutters, uh, to allow for sort of water flow and prevent stagnation of of tidal water in your in your private spaces. So this is how this sort of composite tidal came out of building on, on borrowed time, um, and it was quite productive uh, in the end. And I think that thinking about it, that's that was uh, I think your second question uh, question thinking about infrastructure more broadly through this concept of borrowed time um, help me that infrastructure is this incomplete project um, and it's constantly on the verge of breaking in Samaran. <clears throat> and yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, where it, where it came in.
0: Mm, that's wonderful. And I love how, you know, you present your work as, collaborative project <laughs> right at its heart like even when you uh, talk about how you come up with the terms i love how you know we we're talking about the dialogues and conversations that lead to it so it's it's very helpful to know and i love how you know maybe you and tanya and your research collaborators added building on borrowed time because as infrastructure is incomplete it's also constantly in the making and constantly a process of tinkering so uh yeah that's something I really enjoyed about the book uh and no I want to learn a bit more about your approach to Semarang so throughout the book you articulate Semarang as a place in becoming and Mm -hmm. I'm curious about why we should understand Semarang and places like Semarang as places in Becoming. And what does this emphasis on Becoming tell us about the colonial entanglements that shape Indonesia?
1: Right. So I, yeah, this is is, uh, the title of the first chapter, right? Becoming where I try to do a historian's work. And sort of combine representations of life in uh, in the coastal area of Samarang with these archival records that I found and which were scanned. But you know, and what I, I just I just felt that this area, not just ecologically speaking, um, was always at unrest. You know, this 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 area that the Dutch had sort of earmarked to, to house industries and be um, also a beacon of modernity by, by um, basically featuring the first railroad of, of the archipelago um, during colonial times. Uh, and in fact, uh, very close to where I did my research and lived for, for about a year. Um, you can still find the remnants of this first railway station of Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so this was, yeah, this area was just always undergoing rapid change. And yet at the same time, you know, they, the, the, the Dutch, the colonial administration decided to let it also deteriorate. So when they realized that the North couldn't be reliably and quickly developed um, using road infrastructure and railway infrastructure simply because it's a very damp and very sort of for the Dutch at least disease ridden environment you know full of mosquitoes and and uh, difficult to to navigate because of the mangrove forest at, at the time <clears throat> so they just kind of decided to let, um, the native uh, population at the time sort of um, take take care of it, and so since since these settlements popped up uh, on the margins of Samarang of this port city, very vibrant, you know they they had to make plans for the future. People who live there and had to make do, and not just so not just designers and city planners make these make these plans, but but you know normal people who who have to you know. Make make a living and and get by, um, and they dealt with conditions and with ecologies that they didn't inherit, so were not of their own making. So these Dutch infrastructures that didn't fully work out and didn't didn't fully drain and create this hygienic modern wetland, so they they had to on top of um, dealing with the volatile environment, they also had to deal with when these infrastructures stop working properly. Um, so this this is where I where I think that against this notion of creating a fixed category of fixed entity in the north of Samarang, it's actually a place in becoming because people have to constantly respond to these insufficiencies of infrastructure and the these insufficiencies of modern promise. Um, yeah, so and and I guess in the in this chapter, I also try to show that when people respond and when people make plans, this doesn't mean like like in modernist plans that things move from chaos into some kind of order, you know, and this is also drawing Michael Tausig's idea, but actually, you know, what, what we have to also ethnographically account for is that things move from a kind of chaos into a new sort of chaos. And and this process of becoming, um, I try to, I try to, I think um, introduce in this chapter, and then talk about it more in the following
0: chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really fascinating way to, um, to forefront building on borrowed time, right? This earmarking, this um, constant press process of becoming. Uh, throughout the past into the present and the future. So that's fascinating. And, you know, throughout our conversation, you touched upon maintenance and repair a little bit. So I want to um, turn back to that and ask you kind of a selfish question. Um, (laughs) So I am really interested and my work is rooted in questions of care. And I was really struck by your approach to caring in infrastructural maintenance. So what does care come to mean as residents and governments relate through infrastructure and as they build on borrowed time?
1: Yeah. So maybe I should just give an example of what people did or you know where where they took care of of uh, private belongings um, uh, things that um, that were dear to to them but also these really critical infrastructures that I mentioned earlier which um, which allow people to to prevent flooding or sometimes to at least keep it at a at a tolerable level because flooding does occur all the time I mean it's I I don't know if I mentioned this as explicitly in the book or maybe this has changed. Um, but yeah, this area is just sinking at this incredibly fast rate um, between 5 to 15 centimeters per year. So sort of sinking and adjusting this critical infrastructure as well as your domestic space is just really, really important. And yeah, just some concrete examples of this care. I mean, i i speak I speak about Arif and Ariel in the, in in some of the chapters and throughout. I believe because uh, we just spent a lot of time, and I was privileged to hang out at their food food stand regularly, almost becoming this sort of night hawk. Um, um, and they they just make sure that this street is clean, you know that it attracts people that that um, people can use it for transportation that they stack um, wood on that on the riverbank so that wood has to stay dry and cannot be subject to flooding. And you know at the same time, um, what was always really you know um, shocking to see, but also really impressive is that their own house was below the street level. <clears throat> so it was far more susceptible to to flooding and regularly in fact was submerged and I there's a photo of of you know their submerged living room <clears throat> in the in the book and they they had to make sure to regularly sweep you know and drain this water and, and it's just a very exhausting kind of labor of care but I, I like I like this um, I was really drawn to this uh, what Arif and Ariel do because it's not just care for themselves but for the neighbor neighborhood well being as well um, in the sense that Arif is, uh, is neighborhood chief and um, just wants to um, attract more and more people into his pumping scheme, uh, where he's he's able to you know through donations and his personal involvement um, and his personal energy really mobilize people to to pump um, stagnant water and surplus water back back into the drainage. And this is sort of his private scheme um, that has that has become a very very. Um, Well, to some extent it has become a, a, um, like an example for good and civil behavior. So the government has been, has uh, been paying attention to it, but also it, it just makes sure that this, that neighborhoods do know about each other's flood risks. And that they can together find a more integrated solution, at least locally speaking, to preventing flooding. Yeah, so, and and yeah, living in the swamp, you know, living on, on this rapidly sinking soil, which is compacting year by year, um, and among this shoddy infrastructure um, that the state doesn't reinstate, and that the Dutch left, you know, um, that just requires these practices of care. And as I said, it's kind of intersecting communal and individual care, infrastructural maintenance. Um, sometimes you care for family and relatives as well uh, by joining house par- uh, working parties, you know. But um, <clears throat> this. What it showed to me is that all these these practices of care are very exhausting. They just really tax people's energy. Um, they are constantly necessary because of this uh, this potential of flooding and actual events of flooding.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know your work makes a very important contribution and. In- um, the literatures that articulate care as constant labor and practice rather than just this um, you know ethical or moral stance that's abstract and I love how you're bringing that in through um, thinking as something that generates care and makes it necessary uh, mm-hmm. and you know besides thinking you also articulate staying afloat or buoyancy as a chronic present in which marginalized communities act. And in fact, you know, your um, story about Arif and work of other community members, I think really illustrate that. So I'm curious about what um, Staying Afloat um, tells us about marginalization as well, more broadly.
1: Yeah, Staying Afloat. I mean there's obviously this this relation to water and staying above water. Um, but I think what what this concept um, is owed to is a, an attitude or a commitment involvement that I observed most strongly, with my friend and informant, Adin, who I also present in the, in the book, um, who I remember this, this instance where he, on a particular day where he was particularly frustrated with, uh, with the state of his neighborhood, um, because the improvement projects that have been carried out by the government were, were half-hearted and, and just not successful and, and Left them in the dark, not very transparent, and so he said, you know, when I, when I asked him like why why are you, why are you doing this 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 really important um, activist and organisational work um, to to improve your your place of you know where you grew up why why do you do it and he said, well sometimes <clears throat> I just keep flowing I'm just flowing this was kind of this saja in in Indonesian. And he said that right after, you know, one of these projects uh, that he was uh, an important and foundational part of uh, the Dutch Polder project that I also um, write about in one chapter after that kind of, you noticed, okay, this is not going anywhere, you know, this, these, this promise, both from the Dutch and Indonesian side, it's, it's a, it's an empty promise in the end, and still after realizing that this project might not lead to the expected outcomes, he kept sort of lobbying and kept um, networking, finding out where can we get grants, where can we get funding to maybe empower these local youth to recycle plastic bags or I don't know, now he's I heard now he's uh, thinking of um, composting and sort of using compost for organic gardening, in the, in the neighborhood. So, <clears throat> yeah, this this sometimes also optimist, you know, it might just it, it might be considered a positive attitude or a disposition. Um, this is very important to stay afloat, um, you know, stay um, stay in a position where you can still see what's happening, sort of access funding, stay connected. Um, and this is what I call also buoyancy. Um, and it's a very, there people use and establish buoyancy to different degrees. You know, it's a very differentially, differentially distributed capacity. Um, because I also say that sometimes people cannot stay afloat, right? If you, if you are a newcomer or if, if uh, you don't have the resources or there's a tragic accident in the family, then this might lead, you know, that you cannot uh, uphold this level of buoyancy, you know, which is another word, I think, for endurance. Um, yeah, but, you know, going back to this question of care, you know, sometimes or very often, I, I realize that this, this buoyancy, like this making do is romanticized. By the government you know it's really expected of people it's almost this this the self-care and care for for the neighborhood is sort of yeah it's expected from the government to show that you're able to kind of uh motivate yourself or be be someone who's part of a of a legitimate development project and so i was i was particularly impressed when i you know when i when i saw that um yeah, even even when you embody this positive thinking, and things go badly, you know how do people manage? Or well, I guess they have to, you know, and because the next in next year, uh, the 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 soil will be will continue to sink, and uh, they have literally no option. So this buoyancy also really is not voluntary.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's very important too. Articulate that buoyancy and even care often come from uh, necessity, but also open up new capacities. Um, And, you know, I love how you're taking us through your book, Book through specific examples. And I want to ask you more about uh, something you mentioned the Polder Project. So, you know, throughout the chapter, this Polder Project really appears as one that's constituted by many delays and ruptures. And you show us that it gives rise to a political mode that you call pilot democracy. So, I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on this concept um through the polder project and ruptures and delays it's a it's a catchy concept (laughs) isn't it
1: (laughs) i'm not sure i elaborate (laughs) sufficiently on it in the book but maybe i'll write an article (laughs) i don't know it's because in in fact this polder project is still ongoing Mm. and um, as you said, it's been it's been around for a long, long time. In fact, it was uh, I think I think the conceptualization phase uh, was from 2002 to 2007, and then it its implementation took even longer. Um, and when I when I left Samarang uh, to return to Toronto and 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 try to make sense. <laughs> Of of what I saw, um, uh, it was it was still unsure where this would go and if um, the plan would be realized. Um, and in and in fact, it, it wasn't um, to the dismay of um, Adin uh, and, and and his collaborators. Um, it was it was only piecemeal uh, realized and many many components of this hydraulic system uh, most people probably don't know what a polder is but it's this it's this assemblage of hydraulic infrastructure you know hydraulic technology um, pumps riverbanks, dams uh what what the dutch uh, probably invented a long time ago and now uh, now that' they're, they're they're trying to export it to uh, many other countries that that um, believe you know that they're probably struggling with the same same um, ecological disaster as as the Netherlands have for for some time. Um, but yeah this this perception of the shared perception of disaster, you know that brought about. This project that really allowed the Dutch actors to successfully pitch it to the Indonesian central government at first um, at workshops and then um, after feasibility studies, uh, Samarang was chosen um, to as as a candidate. You know where this pilot project and what was pilot about it and experimental in a sense. Um, is the idea to to form a democratic um, inclusive authority which you know after implementation would be responsible for maintenance and operation so normally in Indonesia it's it's a government affair Um, it's you know these polders are supposed to be run by experts and engineers and and public servants. And so the Dutch uh, pitched and they had a lot of Indonesian supporters. um, They thought we we need a new kind of governance. We need to create a sense of ownership because, and this was an implicit (laughs) criticism because they they basically said, Indonesian infrastructure, the way it is built right now, uh, will start crumbling and falling apart after a couple of years, because residents don't help maintaining it. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's a very, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very short, uh, you know, short-sighted accusation um, and very easy sort of explanation <laughs> why things are the way that they are, um, but it somehow worked. Mm. You know, the Indonesian uh, side was very pleased with this idea. And, yeah, so this pilot democracy that came about, you know, I just notice that you that according to this con, according to this design you could to sort of switch switch it on and off this democracy uh this inclusive way of of making decisions a uh, consensual way of making decisions um, and that really owes to the framing of crisis and uh, something i try to get at in in the book um, that you know when we think of the catastrophe, the impending catastrophe of climate change, you know, it allows, allows to create and dream up these new forms of governance. Um, but in the case of Samarang, these were not rooted in some kind of inclusive institutional process. Um, so this pilot democracy, it did embody promise, but this promise from the get-go hinged on foreign support and on a shared frame of of what was going on um, on a a planetary level. Um, So in the sense, you know, this pilot democracy is is an effect of the way in which we frame climate change as this this problem that concerns us all to the same degree. and kind of envisioning nature going awry, producing these future catastrophes. Um, but what I show in Samarang is that it this this democracy concept sort of prevents these structural changes that are necessary to involve uh, and get more participation from the from the local communities, and that would actually place power, you know, place decision power in the hands of Of climate change victims that live on the front lines of this Mm -hmm. of this event
0: wow yeah that's really fascinating and it's indeed a catchy term (laughs) yeah i i can see it catching on (laughs) but yeah so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your methodology, but also like your methodology follows so seamlessly from your theoretical framework, which uh, I found to be a testament to um your work job so that really stood out to me and you use sinking in as a methodological metaphor in the book when you expand on your fieldwork so could you tell us more about what this metaphor does for you and how it informs your methodology
1: thinking i mean it's obviously a phenomenon or something that i daily observed um, on my on my daily walks along the river, you could tell uh, from signs on on bridges or the water level that this area was in fact sinking. You know this was not owed to sea level rise only, which only which is only responsible for a fraction of the the thinking process. Um, so I guess from from you know in the, in ethnography or in anthropology we often we often um, or we get trained <laughs> throughout our graduate studies um, that immersion is is something needed to establish a situated kind of knowledge and that this also involves involves long-term, or at least mid-term, emotional, psychological, and intersubjective labor. Um, And for me, living in these low-lying areas of Samarang and to some extent being involved in in these processes of care that I mentioned, that meant, you know, I'm I'm actually, you know, literally syncing with people. Like I'm I'm sinking just as you know they on a daily basis sync with the floodplain and and the human artifacts that were built on it. Um and, and I think this is kind of my attempt of dwelling in this disaster, and uh, which is something that Kim Fortune, for example, urges us to do, and then Allison. Um but you know saying this and this is also really important to me um i i'm not saying you know i, I was sort of experiencing disaster as 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 people did um the, the the people that i spoke to daily but i just developing this kind of sense of going down below that was important and just just when i was uh, doing this field work i was I was also reading about um, deep diving <laughs> a little, little bit as uh, as a, as a hob- hobby, and there's this book by James Nestor called Deep, uh, where he kind of where he speaks about sinking as not this negative, negative process um, that that usually causes anxiety and sort of bodily trauma for us, but is also this kind of effortless um, process. This this movement that can be pleasurable and a wanted thing, and so that that sort of sinking, sinking in um, over time, and sort of trusting that this is the right thing to do. I think that really informed my my sort of daily, my 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 psyche, like and my methodological approach, to, um, and and this in this process of sinking sort of learning um, what's at stake sort of for people of enduring this this um, catastrophe yeah, of climate change that is unfolding through these very opaque infrastructures.
0: Mm, that's such a wonderful way to put it. And I wonder if, you know, you also found yourself trying to stay afloat in some ways?
1: I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no i i you know i'm not i guess when you talk to when you become a trusted interlocutor um and you you sort of are expected also at some point to perform this this labor like of of staying afloat and 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 in a sense by by being a white scholar and being from from the outside and being a more privileged person i was certainly becoming sort of a node in this network that allowed buoyancy so in the sense that people would approach me and ask me what the government thinks about this project do you have any ideas about this um can you point us to sources for funding for for instance and so yes uh to to some extent you um i i i guess i was more uh sort of ethically obligated to help some people stay afloat rather than actually do, doing and experiencing that myself i wouldn't claim that at all
0: mm-hmm. yeah um but, yeah, that points out to a very you know important issue where you know it shows that you're not just extracting this data to write this book but coming up with ways um in some capacity uh and as necessary to um contribute to buoyancy i guess um and you know, I was also struck to the very rich photoethnography in the book, and I found it very useful to elicit the links between architecture, homemaking, and temporality. So could you speak a bit more to what the visual does for your thinking on these issues?
1: The I was very happy when the when the when university of minnesota press allowed me to <laughs> include <laughs> photos i'm not a i'm not a professional or not even close uh, photographer but it um yeah it's it was an honor to be allowed to you know portray this particular neighborhood street uh, it's 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 so the photos you see in the book of houses which are basically located or basically uh, adjacent to one another, and you see from the photos that um, they're very they're very different styles, very different architecture. Uh, you can, to some extent, see uh, what socioeconomic standing the person has. Um, so that that was really important for me to like show that this is not this hom- homogeneous, kampong, you know where, but you have actually this really important diversity, you know, style, stylistically speaking, culturally speaking, uh, and economically speaking. Um, and at the same time, um, these houses, they, they showed so beautifully that, you know, they were alive and they had to constantly morph and change, um, to sync with, you know, sync with a Y, um, with With the changing um, sociological conditions uh, and the political ecology of water infrastructure, and so these houses were traces of time. you know they they were had this really intimate relationship with the time spans of of these water systems, and sometimes, when I try to do this in these very short captions, and I wish I had more time or more space to, to write about the architecture and, and the dwellers sort of situations, um, but they they speak of past past lives. And, and in a sense, you see that um, some houses already contain architecturally the seeds for the future, like they are build way too high you know people actually have to hike up you know these stairs which is completely unnecessary but in 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 that sense they are harbingers of the future because they you know they the the dwellers the residents they they envision um this the trend of the encroaching sea to continue and there's one um, picture of a newly built or freshly built home um, where yeah people have to go up these stairs before they can enter their house and one of my one of my informants joked that you can read from this house you can see that this person doesn't trust the government because it would not come through with any of the infrastructural renewals that they had promised and so this is this is this shows you know that people have these intricate and very very personal isolated also strategies to To sync, uh, time wise,
0: yeah. Yeah, I found it very useful for, you know, the built environment to come alive. So I'm also thankful for the press <laughs> for allowing the photos to be there. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of the future, my last question is: What is next for you? What are some new projects, questions, even courses that you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, the future. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm super privileged. I, after a phase of insecurity and uh, you know job wise and uh, not not sure, you know, what what the future of of my anthropological work would be. Um, I've i I managed to to get a grant um, from the German. Um, scientific foundation, which uh, which allows me to do more research on urbanized coasts at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology, um, and after studying water infrastructure, this time I will focus on minerals. I will um, well assemble a team of uh, of researchers. So anyone you know interested in sand, <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> Uh, you know, and if you're trained in anthropological methods, then get in touch because there's this <laughs> new, uh, research project, uh, and, 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 um, meditation, <laughs> collective meditation on sand, um, at, at, uh, the Max Planck Institute in Halle. And, um, yeah, I think I will just continue doing this sort of research that is, uh, trying to understand, um, spatial and social marginalization by looking at uh, looking at political ecologies um, and how cities are shaped um, by ecological processes and um, yeah uh, no course is planned so far um, because this this wonderful grant allows me to focus on research mm-hmm. um, but um, who knows
0: yeah, that's wonderful. Well, we'll be really looking forward to this new project. And again, let's remind our listeners, if you're interested in these topics, please get in touch with Lukas. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Lucas, for joining us and for your insights.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alice.
0: Of course, it's my pleasure. I am Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Building on Borrowed Time, Rising Seas and Failing Infrastructure in Samarang, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.